Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Hey everyone, I'm Alan, I'm an alcoholic. And I gotta be honest, like uh, I was a little bit nervous. Like I wasn't nervous when Aaron asked me. I wasn't nervous this morning. And uh, Laura and I went for a walk today and I made lunch when I got back and she said that, uh, she just texted Crystal and Crystal said that Richie sent a text to the whole home group and everyone's coming and I was like, (laughs) I was eating an enchilada with habanero sauce and sour cream. And about 10 minutes later, Laura asked me why there was sour cream in the microwave. So if you're a newcomer, the sour cream does not go in the microwave. Um, I'm really, really happy to be back live. You know, Laura and I, we stayed in, um, you know, during the pandemic, we probably stayed in a little bit longer than, than a lot of people. Um, there was, you know, there was, and I, I just want to start by being current, right? So um, there were a whole lot of Zoom meetings. I mean, there was a great opportunity, and I was all over the world, and I was at meetings all over, and I was meeting people. And at the end of this pandemic, I actually, the pandemic was actually over, you know, I felt really disconnected, and I felt disconnected from here, you know, because I got sober here eight and a half years ago. My, my sobriety date is December 13th, 2013. Um, it was not my first sobriety date, and hopefully if I continue doing what I'm doing, it will be my last, but you know, there were a whole lot of people here, um, and some of them are in this room, that played a, a, a vital role in helping me stay sober um, through some very difficult times. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about what it was like, but I really wanna get into you know, like what sobriety was like, because there are some new faces here. And I'll tell you right now, it wasn't easy. You know, my first year was not easy, okay? But I didn't have to drink or pick up a mind-altering substance. And my second year wasn't easy, okay? But I didn't have to pick up a drink or a mind-altering substance. You know, and it's, it's a heck of a lot easier now, but I still have to do the things that I'm doing and I still have to be active in Alco- Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm still an alcoholic and my thinking, you know, my, my thinking is very much, can, can be very much in any day, um, you know, the way it was when I walked in the rooms. So um, just a little bit about my background. I'm not from here originally. I grew up in New York. Um, I, was, I was born in Brooklyn and I came from... Uh, average middle-class family. There was no alcoholism, you know, in the home. I mean, there was alcoholism extended, but not in my home. There was no abuse in my home. There was no divorce in the home. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't a leave it to beaver family where everything was like, you know, perfect. There was fighting and arguing, um, you know, and pretty much the time I turned 15, the fighting and the arguing, you know, um, pretty much accelerated because I was the cause of all of it. But you know, up to that point, I was a really good student. My, I had a, an older sister. I have a younger sister. Um, and it was just kind of like normal, you know, um, in a neighborhood where um, it was a bunch of really tough guys and I wasn't a tough guy. Um, you know, a lot of good athletes. I wasn't a great athlete. You know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that I wasn't. And kind of like what used to go through my head was what I wasn't, you know, and, and where do I really fit in? And I never really thought, you know, like when we tell our stories, um, it's always looking back, you know, and from the point of view of looking back, I could say, you know, I felt different and all of that stuff. But I could tell you when I noticed that things were really different. And that would be when I picked up my first drink. Because when I per- picked up my first drink, I didn't have that self-centered fear. You know, I wasn't like shy, you know, and self-conscious around the girls. Right. When I when I had some drinks in me. Right. I wasn't afraid, you know, of the tough guys when I had some drinks in me. Um, And when I grew up, I grew up since uh, I'm not a kid, as some of you may notice, I grew up in the 70s. And there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of mind altering substances. So there were there were some other there were a lot of other substances that that, you know, were involved in my story early on. 
I said there were a lot of serial killers in the 70s, too. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Do I have to qualify on that one, too? <laughs> it's a program of rigorous honesty. Um, and, and, you know, and actually I grew up in a neighborhood where there, where there actually was some serious, you know, some serious stuff going on. And um, my, my parents encouraged me to go to this high school in Manhattan, which was a math and science high school as a smart kid. And I took the test I got it, and they wanted me to go to, you know, to that school because there were a lot of drugs in my neighborhood. So I go to the school in Manhattan and um, where there were all these geniuses from all over New York City, um, and I'm there with them, and uh, every one of them is like getting high, doing drugs, doing acid, doing coke, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And I got introduced to more stuff at a math and science high school than I would have in my neighborhood. <laughs> you know, and, and I think the moral of the story, and the big book talks about it, is like you could send me to Greenland or Iceland or something like that, you know, I'm gonna find that bottle of tequila, you know. Um, so, you know, but, you know, the point was, like, when I started, all of a sudden I felt like I fit in, right? So, like, we, for, for new people, you hear at meetings, you know, what may sound kind of ridiculous that, you know, drinking was my solution, but it was my solution. It was a solution to a problem I didn't even know I had. You know, I didn't feel comfortable with people. I was always, I was never at ease, like, walking into a room, like, you know, speaking in front of people, meeting new people. I was, I was shy. I was, you know, what my parents would call self-conscious, right? And, like, you know, today as an alcoholic who's been through the book quite a few times, I know what self-conscious means, self-centered, right? Like, that's exactly what it is. I'm thinking about me, and I'm thinking about what you're thinking about me, you know, and it's like, it's all about approval seeking. And I stand up here, you know, I'm, I'm thinking today is like, oh, what am I going to say? Because, you know, what are these people going to think? And it's the first time I'm back, you know, doing a talk in this area. Um, that's self-centered. That's self-centered fear, right? And that really is like at the root of what my disease is. Um, you know, so, but as long as I had the solution, right? So I had the alcohol and some of these other substances when I was young, um, I didn't experience that. Right. So like, you know, what I like to say is like what alcohol did for me, not what it did to me. Right. So I have like a lot of friends who would drink, you know, with us. We, we, we party. OK, whatever it is we were actually doing. And they would stop at some point. They would get sick and throw up and they'd stop. And, you know, they were only good for like the Friday and Saturday because they had stuff to do on Monday. And like they weren't drinking at night on, you know, weekdays and stuff like that. And I remember when I went to college, like, you know, drinking age, legal age in New York when I went to school was 18. There were seven bars on campus and six of them were run by students, right? We had the keys to the supply, you know, thing. like if it snowed, the bar was open at eight in the morning, you know? I mean, that, that's what Stony Brook was like when I went to college for three years there. And I see a smile back there, but that's what Stony Brook was like when I went, when I went, it was, it was a big party school. You know, and for me, I was like, I was like a year younger, um, I started college really early, and it was just going to be like one big party, right? Like this is, you know, this is where I get my freedom. I used to, I didn't go to many classes. I would just take the tests in the f for the first year or so. By my third year, I wasn't even taking exams, and I had dropped out, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I got into some trouble at home. I got arrested for the first time when I was 23, and I realized, like, you know, perhaps my, my life had taken a you know, a, a wrong turn, and I made a decision, you know, I was going to go back to school, I was going to get my shit together, and, um, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drug, and I didn't dip, do it for like four years, um, but I was a workaholic, you know, I was obsessive with school, um, I got like straight A's from being a dropout, I went to a great graduate business school, I started, started working on Wall Street, when I started working on Wall Street, I was, a, you know, I was a hedge fund guy, I was a trader, um, and, I was, and it's funny because I, I took that job and I went in that direction because I thought it was an easy way to make money. Like there was nothing in me that's like, oh, you're a Wall Street type. And there was none of my family was, um, but there was money there, you know? Um, and I figured, well, you know, I'm gonna do this. And I got a job and as soon as I started working, you know, one of the things that started happening was people were going out to drink after work you know, pretty much every day. And we were getting taken out to, to, you know, to restaurants and clubs and some of the nicest clubs and restaurants in Manhattan. 
And we would, you know, and well, I always say like we would drink. I don't know what anyone else did. Like I drank, <laughs> right? So, so you know, like like you know, a typical meal. You you walk in and the server comes by and says, you know, can I start you off with drinks? And it'll be like, yeah, I'll have a double. And pretty much at the time, it was like Jack Daniels and you know, double Jack. And um, you know, as soon as that was done, it would be like. You know, and I got really good with the hand signals, and that stayed with me for about 35 years because I found, yeah, I, I just, I'm jumping in time here, but I found when my wife wanted to divorce me and she really didn't want me to drink, if I was at a restaurant drinking and I wanted to order and like she wouldn't know, I would do the tap the glass thing and the, the server would come up with another drink as if my wife didn't know I just ordered another drink and just drank it. But, you know, but I mean, I'm an alcoholic, right? Like I'm going to do what I need to do to get what I want. Right? I don't care what it is, I'm going to do what I need to do. Right? And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the way I drank, because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I mean, I was wearing a, a suit and tie when I was doing this stuff. And to me, an alcoholic is someone, you know, like if, for you older people who know Jethro Tull, like, like Aqualung. It's like this picture of a man with a beard and snot in it, and he's on a park bench and, you know, like has a, a brown paper bag and he's drinking some cheap stuff, right? And it's like, well, I'm drinking the good stuff. You know, I can't be an alcoholic. But I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic. And the truth is I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there were times where I thought maybe I drank too much. There were times I even kidded around with people like my first wife and said, you know, I drink like an alcoholic, you know, like, like as if it was like a badge of honor. <clears throat> But I did, really didn't know what it meant. And this is what my drinking looked like. I'd be at one of those, you know, dinners, and I would start off with my double and then another double. And I, I would just drink, drink straight through the meal. And if you've ever drank, like, when you drink that hard, you drink that fast, sometimes you get that, like, cold sweat. It's like alcohol poisoning, right? And it's like a go pale, and my body is full of sweat. And I'm wearing, like, the suit and the tie and all this stuff, and my shirt is dripping, right? And I excuse myself, right, to stumble off to the bathroom. I go and puke my guts up, right, and, uh, and wash up, put cold water on my face, and pull my tie up, throw the jacket on, right, stumble back to the table, sit down, and order a double. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm, a, I'm good at this. Like, I'm a good drinker, you know? How many people, no, seriously, like, how many people, right, like, after they just, you know, like barfed up, you know, everything's like, give me another one, right? And, it, and like, I had no idea that I had this physical craving for alcohol, that my body was demanding it, okay? And, and really that was a problem for me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought I was always changing my mind. I thought I was always making a decision to have the next one. I, I thought stories like, well, I just puked up all the stuff that's in my stomach, so like, I, I, I need to have another one because I just have to replenish, you know? Like, there was always a story that went with it, but I didn't know what was going on, and that's the way I drank. And, you know, what happened for me, I mean, I know this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but, you know, I gotta be honest, and, you know, like, there were other substances involved. At the time, I was doing nothing other than drinking. I had a respectable job. Right, that I did not want to lose. I lived in a beautiful neighborhood, which was not enough. I lived in a beautiful house, which was not enough. I had nice cars, which was not enough. But I had started getting liver disease, <laughs> you know, like little, little details of, you know, and I found that out when, um, when I injured my back and I had to have back surgery. They did some blood work on me. And when they did the blood work, it showed that my liver enzymes were elevated. They did an exam. My liver was enlarged. They did an ultrasound or whatever, and it was like my liver was fatty. And they asked me, like, you know, how much do you drink? They didn't say, do you drink? They said, how much do you drink? And I said, once in a while. <laughs> right? And you're laughing because you're not going to tell a doctor the truth. Right? Because the doctor might want to help me. Right? And I don't want help. You know, I didn't want help because I didn't really think I had a problem. So they did the surgery and they put me on a morphine pump. And let's just say the rest is history, okay, for Alcoholics Anonymous purposes, right? Three years later, um, I'm in Warrensville in a treatment center. My house was foreclosed. My cars were flat bedded away. I had lost my job. I'd been out of work for a year. I was flat broke. 
um, I came here. And it was the first time in my life, I was 42 years old, it was the first time in my life I picked up the phone and said, I need help. I called my sister, because my family was just waiting. You know, they were just waiting. My family didn't see me. Holidays, you know, occasions. Um, you coming over for Thanksgiving? Sure, I'll be there. Day of Thanksgiving, you know what? Fran, that was my first wife, she's, she's not feeling well, we're not gonna make it tonight. Because I couldn't show up I wasn't capable of showing up. And I didn't want people to see, you know, um, how I'm doing. It's funny, I was just, before we left, I was getting this text chain from these guys that I went to college with. And all of them stayed, Stony Brook, by the way. And all of them stayed in touch for, you know, whatever, it's like 40 years now. And I was part of this chain, you know, wishing each other like this, you know, happy holiday stuff. These guys didn't know where I was. And they thought I was dead. Like nobody knew where I was, you know. And my the the joke, right? Because everything's funny for us. Is I was in the witness protection program, right? Like I didn't want them to know how bad I got, you know. I I just like I was I was ashamed, but I couldn't admit that I had a problem. But anyway, I come to treatment center. I spend ninety days in treatment center. I go to a meeting. Um, I go to another fellowship because I thought, you know, well, you know, here I go, drugs are the problem. I don't have a problem drinking. You know, I, I ignore the, the, um, you know, the fact that I had liver disease, but I don't have a problem with alcohol, right? It's just if I, you know, I keep crossing that line over to the drugs and the drugs are what keep getting me in trouble. And I'm just, you know, I'm going to go to that other fellowship. <clears throat> and I became a meeting maker. And I don't care what fellowship you go to, okay, meetings don't keep you sober, not this alcoholic addict, okay? It just wasn't enough. And I went to the meetings, and, you know, one of the things that I started doing was, you know, comparing myself out, right? I'm not like you, and 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 before I know it, I'm back, you know, in that place where I spent years alone and isolated. You know, I was actually going to start, I was going to tell a joke, like, like, which is not so funny, you know, about this whole pandemic thing, right? Like, like, alcoholics don't like change. When the pandemic came, and we had the hard lockdown, like that March or whatever it was, it's like, you know, I remember thinking, like, I could do this standing on my head. Like, I drank alone and did drugs alone forever, right? Like, like, I know how to be alone, okay? When things reopened is where I had a little bit of a struggle. Now I gotta come out and I gotta see people again. You know, and like the, the blessing of the whole thing, the fact that I continued to do the work during this, during this period was, number one, I knew I needed to get out and I knew like that, that left side of the triangle, the fellowship part is more than being a meeting maker, I needed to have the connection. But so anyway, so I'm going to this other fellowship, I go there for about five years and I'm finally like disgusted. And by the way, I haven't like used or drank this whole time. And maybe I'm really not that bad, right? I had no idea what powerless really meant, okay? And I wanted absolutely nothing to do with God, right? God to me was either, like, if, when you were talking about God, you were talking about religion. And when you were talking about spirituality, I'm like, spirituality, right? That's like, you know, I just see, like, you know, people in yoga pants, you know, doing, going, mm, right? Like, that's, that's what I thought it was. I had no idea what any of this stuff was. And, like, my mind was snapped closed, right? Like, there was no room for, like, any new information, any new ideas. I, I knew everything, um, and I hadn't used in five years, right? Now, <clears throat> you know, during that period of time, I went through... I got divorced and I remarried, so it was my second wife. And she, she's not an alcoholic or an addict. She, she's got no history of that, you know, directly. Family stuff, so maybe she's an ACOA or whatever. Um, and, you know, for all of you people who have experienced this, if, you know, if you're not new, if you're new, you may have experienced this too, like you put down the drink right? And things get worse, right? Like, like if you're a real alcoholic, odds are, right? If, if you're doing nothing, like for me, if I was doing nothing, things got worse, right? I was full of fear, which made me, you know, really controlling, you know, I'd like to say manipulative because it doesn't sound as abusive, right? And I was not a good husband, you know? I thought I was, you know, I thought like, 
a good husband is somebody who brings home a nice paycheck. And pretty much throughout, you know, because I was able to rebuild and I got back into, you know, in, into a business that paid well. And I'm providing and I married a, a single mom. So now I got two daughters that I'm taking care of. And I, and I thought I was a pretty good stepfather and I will defend that to, to this day. But, um, and I still have a relationship with them because second wife is also an ex-wife. Um, but, you know, she wasn't really happy and I couldn't understand why she wasn't happy. And I kept trying to fix things because I was in untreated alcoholism and I wanted to run the show and things weren't going the way I thought they should go, right? And this is building up the fear and the fear and the fear. In the meantime, my mom's up in New York and she gets sick. Well, she doesn't get sick actually. She needed a simple surgery. She was 78 years old. She had to have a hernia repair simple surgery. She asked me to come in and take her to the hospital for it, and I did that. I went up to, to New York, and I, and I took her to the hospital, and she had the surgery. And two days later, she bleeds out into her belly, and she ends up with brain damage because, um, you know, she lost so much blood, and by the time they got to her. And, um, so now this is a three-year process from that surgery to her passing away. So I'm here in Berks County, no program, no God, no fellowship, no anything, okay, with a wife who's threatening to leave, right, Cause, and I think she's nuts, right, and, and a mom up in New York who's essentially dying, you know, for over a three-year period, and I'm driving up to New York three days a week, and then it's two days a week, then I'm just going up on the weekends, I'm going back and forth, and there's a lot, you know, and uh, my solution is, you know, we need to go on vacation, honey, because I figure I'm going to fix the marriage. I know I can't fix my mom's situation, but I'm going to save this damn marriage, right? And we go down to Mexico, and, uh, and Jim's got to love this, this one, right? My, my wife orders a double. Uh, my wife orders a drink, and I order a double, right? She gets one of those fruit bowls, right, that you get when you're on vacation because she's not an alcoholic, and I ordered a double shot of tequila. And that double shot of tequila was tequila for two years, right? I didn't think about the drink. I didn't think about the consequences. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I didn't think I had a problem. I didn't think any, I didn't think. I didn't think, okay? I just did it, right? And that, that drink actually caused, uh, uh, um, it ended up getting me here. So in a sense, it was probably good because I would have been in, in that untreated alcoholism place in my life and everyone else's life would have gotten worse maybe if I hadn't. Um, but my mom was very close to passing away. My wife was very close to leave me and I knew I was in trouble. I had checked myself into the Reading Detox and I spent six days in the Reading Detox. I come out. I know I'm going to go home and face my wife <laughs> so I don't come home sober. Okay, and that was the first time in my life where I said, oh my God, there's no way out. And that for me was the beginning of like understanding what the first step really was. It was, oh my God, there's no way out. I really believed there was no way out. And I really believed like, you know, the only way out in this thing is like for me to take myself out. And I went up to New York, I saw my mom, and it was the last day she was conscious before she slipped into a coma. And I checked myself into a treatment center um, because I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know God. I didn't know any of that stuff. I just didn't know. And I checked myself into a treatment center. I remember waking up the first morning that I was there. And it's like, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, you know, I just look back on my life. And, you know, and, and for me, and I want to talk about these feelings because it was really important for me because it really was what, what changed things for me, right? I had this, like, really, really deep sense of, of like, disconnection with other people. I felt, I honestly felt this, I felt like I was an abomination. That's the word that came to mind. And I'm not a scriptural guy, so I don't know where that word came from. But I really felt like I didn't deserve to be around other people. Like that I would, like in the past where it was like, like I remember the first time I was in treatment. How does a guy like me end up in a place like this, right? Like that was my thought. Second time I was in treatment, it was like, oh my God, like, like I don't, you know, I, I don't even, deserve to be walking this earth. And I was thinking about suicide, and I didn't, obviously didn't tell anyone there. Um, and, and what came to mind was I had a little granddaughter, and, um, and I kept thinking, like, how would they tell her? Because I raised her from when she was two, and she had an abusive father, and, 
And I just remember thinking about her. Um, and I started thinking about like all the people that I hurt, right? Because, you know, when my father was sick and dying, my mom called up the three of us and said, your dad wants y'all to come over, right? And it was back in the days when I was doing the narcotics and it was a Friday and I didn't have enough for the weekend, you know how that is, right? So like, you know, I'm living in Brooklyn, I gotta make a run to the Bronx. I don't have time to go over to my father. I mean, I'll, I'll come over tomorrow. And that's exactly what I said. I'll come over tomorrow, right? Tomorrow my father was dead, right? So I didn't show up for him, right? Now my mom's dying and I'm in a treatment center, okay? And it's like, yeah, I came from a family that was loving. Right? I came from a family that gave me everything that they were capable of giving me, right? And I can't even be there for them. You know, when, you know, when families are there for each other, and I could, worse, I couldn't be there for my sisters who had to make the decision when my mom was in home hospice about turning up the morphine and, you know, and, you know, turning, turning it up, okay? Um, and the only time they called me when I was in treatment, the only thing they wanted from me was, you know, they thought my mom wasn't letting go and they thought that my mom needed closure and they would call me up and I would go in the CA's office and they would hold the phone up to my mom and they would tell me, tell mom it's okay to let go. So <clears throat> when I was there, it was, it was, you know, I had a lot of feelings about other people and I think it's the first time in my life I actually thought about other people and I thought about how badly I had hurt people. You know, then my mom passed away. She passed away when I was in treatment, and they let me go up for the for the funeral. And I came back the same day because I knew I needed to be, you know, where I was in treatment. And I had a a talk with God. I had started to talk to God, right? So I told you like I didn't want anything to do with God, but like I started talking to God. And one of the first things that I said, this is before my mom passed away, is I said, God, please take me in my sleep, right? Now, you know what I meant, right? Like, give me a quick heart attack and make it, you know, the chicken's way out. But I said, take me in my sleep. And today I look at that and I say, what's the first line of the third step prayer? God, I offer myself today, right? Because I woke up the next morning. And I, and, and I, and I said another prayer the next night. And the, and the prayer I said the next night is, God, if you exist, Please just show me a, a sign. And I was crying every night. You know, I think I cried my whole first year, right? And um, the next day there was a speaker speaking, and the speaker was talking about this, the hole in the soul and how, you know, it's filled. And, and I was like, man, that's what I was thinking about. Maybe this is like the sign. And I, I kept doing it almost to the point of goofy because I knew my wife was going to file divorce, and I, you know, for divorce, and I didn't want her to... You know, so I was like, God, show me a sign about that. I, so I started playing with that. But when my mom died, I basically made a deal with God, okay? And it was like a third-step decision. I didn't know it was a third-step decision. I didn't even work my first step, really. But I, God, I was willing to do anything to not live like this. I just didn't like the human being I had turned into. And I didn't know, you know, how this all happened. Right, like, like, you know, I can tell you today if when I was 12 years old, I wrote a plan for my life, okay, even though I would have deviated somewhere, there's no way I would have been an alcoholic, an addict, arrested three times, you know, losing a career, twice divorced, in treatment, like that stuff wouldn't, have, you know, emergency room visits, stomach pumps, like that stuff wouldn't have been on the list. Like that's not the way my life was, it's not the way my sister's lives were, you know, um, something went wrong, you know, and I didn't understand, but I made a deal. I just said to God, I'm willing to do anything, right? And like something happened and like this feeling of everything's going to be okay came over me. And I swear to God, I don't know how long that, that lasted, if it was a minute, if it was an hour or what it was, but I'll never forget it because I just had this, this knowingness that everything was going to be okay, right? Provided... I do what the deal was. It's I'm willing to do, you know, anything, 
right? And I didn't know what that meant. And they, they told me, get a 12-step contact so that when you leave here, you know, you're, you're connected somehow. And they gave me a phone number, and the phone number was disconnected. And, and I, like, you know, if you're an alcoholic like me living in self-pity, because I was really in self-pity at the time. It's like, oh, my luck, you know, like. And, and then I said, so give me another number, right? And they gave me this other number, and, um, and it was a guy from this area that uh, he was the first guy I met, right? And uh, he was down in Florida, and he said to me, uh, he goes, well, you know, I'm in Florida now. He goes, when are you getting out? I told him the date, right? And he said, oh, I'm landing in Philly that day. I'll meet you at happy hour. And he told me where this meeting is, right? So it was like one of those coincidence things, right? I just like, I have like a bunch of these things, you know? And what I found was like when I started following directions, Right? Like these little coincidence things just seem to happen. Like good things seem to happen in my life when I listen to someone else. You know, when I listen to me, not so good. Um, but I came, I got out, and I went to that meeting the very first day. And his name is Bobby, in case you all know him, right? So, like, I was talking to Bobby, and I said, I told him what happened. And he, he, he just looked at me and he said, you're going to touch more people in your recovery than you're hurting your addiction, right? And I had no idea what this guy's talking about, right? Like, I'm just out of treatment. My mom just died. And by the way, my wife just had filed for divorce while I was still there. You know, like, I'm going to help people, right? Like, I didn't come here to meet God. I didn't come here to help people. I didn't come. I came here because I was, like, really broken. But, like, I listened to what he said. I heard those words. You know, and I'll never forget them, and I haven't forgotten them, and I tell them to all my sponsees, right? And every time I tell my story, I, I, I say this, because I think it's really important, okay? Because that really is the solution, and, and it was what he was talking to me about. And I asked him to sponsor me, and he goes, I live half the, the year in Florida. <clears throat> he goes, I could, I could be a temporary sponsee, and I, I knew enough to say, I don't want temporary sobriety. So, like, do you know someone... And I ended up getting a guy and he, you know, he took me through the steps and we got like about step, pretty much step eight before he moved. Um, now, I'll tell you this, okay, because, you know, there, there are some new people here and I know some of you new people, I know where you are in the steps and stuff like that. I'm going to tell you, I didn't do this perfectly, right? Like I didn't do everything like on time. I met every single week, like I never missed I mean, I was really grateful. Like, I used to bring bagels over to this guy's house, like, every Sunday morning, you know. I mean, I was just so happy to have, like, some kind of guidance, right? But I did all the work in the book. You know, did I stall on my fourth step? Yeah. Did I get, did he say to me, you know what, I'm moving, I want to hear your fifth step before I move, right? I locked myself in a room, because, and I realized, like, you know, I'd spent, like, you know, many, many, many weeks thinking about my fourth step, I hadn't spent all that much time with a pen in my hand, right? And once I put the pen in my hand, you know, I wrote, and I wrote like mad, you know? And like, think about it, like my wife just divorced. She walked out on me at the time where I needed her most, right? So she got 33 pages, right? You know, like, like my mom died and the doctors didn't do their job. And you know, there was a whole lot, there was a lot there, but you know what, what it was, was it was the stuff that was right in front of me. Right? It wasn't like, I didn't do this, this go back to like kindergarten and you know, you know, which bully beat me up or actually in kindergarten, you know, I didn't bring my gloves one day when it was, it was snowing so I couldn't go out and play. Not that I have a resentment, right? But like that stuff doesn't, you know, that, that didn't need to get dealt with at that time. What needed to get dealt with was the stuff that was right in front of me that was really hurting me, you know? And um, I was in the house with, you know, with my ex-wife, you know, she had filed and she wasn't talking to me. And I was at a meeting, I was at Kissinger 815 one Saturday morning and I get a text saying, you know, well, if you come home, there's a moving truck outside the house, just want to let you know. Um, and so I stayed away from the house, you know, to make sure like I didn't like run into them. And when I got, came to the house, pretty much the house was empty. There were, you know, the bedroom had furniture. I'll leave it at that. It's a four bedroom house. And it was, it was like no furniture left in it. And I remember thinking, and the cable was turned off and all this. Stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, like, like, I just, I just like wanted to die. I spent a lot of time talking to God in my first year, you know, and what I, what I would say, what I would say was, God, please help me. I can't do this. I'm really struggling. Like, 
Like, I can't do this alone. And, and I mean that, like, in all, I meant that in all sincerity, that my prayers in my first two years are probably the most sincere prayers I ever made because they always came with tears in my eyes and they were really, they were really sincere. You know, today it's, God, you know, I need help on this one, please. You know, but it's like, you know, I mean, I just lost my mom, you know. Um, my sisters were barely talking to me. My wife moved out with the kids, you know. My, like, you know, I had just opened a business, which is a good decision to do during a relapse, you know. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I was struggling with that. And I remember, I remember hearing, anything you put before you recover, you will lose. And when my sponsor wanted to see me at noon, I left the office and locked the door, right? And went, went to meet my sponsor, okay? Um, when I became the coffee maker at Walk the Walk, and they have that really lousy um, coffee maker that takes 45 minutes, I was out the door of my office to get there to make coffee. I mean, that much I was doing. You know, I really was, you know, because it was really, really difficult. You know, divorce in recovery is, is, is challenging. You get a letter from the lawyer pretty much every other day, and, you know, um, you're constantly getting stuff to put on inventories, and there's a whole lot of fear that goes along with it. And what happened was I ended up falling in with a crew of people, and, you know, Jim knows because he was one of them, and, like, I wasn't the friendliest guy when I walked in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I didn't want anything to do with anyone. Like, I just wanted to be alone and feel sorry for myself and try to f figure out how I was going to fix my problems. And, like, you know, there was a crew of people that, you know, were really doing the deal, right? And they didn't let me be alone, you know. Um, and they, they kind of, like, I kind of felt like they took me under their wing. You know, and I really feel like during that period of time, you know, in early recovery, like I was really blessed and blessed in the way, in the sense that um, I said a lot of prayers, right? I didn't hear God saying something right back to me, but everything seemed to fall in place. You know, there was a good crew of solid, solid people. I got a sponsor who was you know, taking me through the steps. Um, you know, just pretty much everything was, you know, was was, you know, was as it should be. Now, let me just say a little bit. I struggled, right? I did struggle. First up, I told you, you know, um, when I drink, I can't control the amount I drink. No, but I, I wanted to drink that way. Like, if you're going to drink, right, you're going to drink to get drunk. And I really, I had to really look at that and really, like, be asked the question, like, okay, was there, were there any times where you drank more than you should have? You know, and you ended up getting in a situation that, you know, and the answer to that was real simple. And I shared that. It was the time, you know, where my wife was threatening to leave. And I kept, you know, I, those, those three doubles, I think I said that. I, three doubles is, you know, is, is my limit. And I, by the end of the meal, she's asking for car keys. She's driving and sleeping in another bedroom, you know. Um, so I found those places. The, the thing about the obsession to, to drink is like, like, you know, like, you know, can I stay stopped on my own? Well, I think I pretty much proved that that was not the case, okay? I go into a detox, right, because my mom's dying, my wife's leaving, and my business is going to fail, right? And in our book, it says, you know, the baffling, feature, the baffling feature of alcohol is the utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And I think I had some good necessity and some good wish there, you know? I think it's valid. Right? And I could not stay sober. So I got that. You know, and when it came to the second step, the thing about God, it was like, there better be. Like, you better be right. And when I say you, it was really like a whole bunch of the, the people that were in, like, this crew of people that I was hanging with, you know, that were active in service and they were sponsoring. And every time they would say, you know, you're not trusting God, pray on. I was like, trusting God. You know, like, it was almost annoying, but like, you know what? It was something that they were doing that was working for them. And every, all my best plans, you know, led me to being 54 years old before I really got sober. So I was listening to someone else for a change. And a third step, you know, I'll be honest, when I first went through the steps, my sponsor said, look, it's just a decision to make the rest, to do the rest of the work. Today, at whatever, eight, eight and a half years, it means it means everything, okay? Because that's the third the third step. You know, it talks about the fact that like I'm running the show, 
right? And what the solution is, it's like give God his job back. Stupid, you know, it's like really easy. Um, but isn't that like, like, isn't that the, the source of all my problems? I don't like the way you're acting. I don't like what the freaking weather's doing. You know, I just can't accept, you know, life on God's terms. You know, I always go back, there's a book I read, and some of you may, Richard Rohr, Breathing Underwater, Spirituality and 12 Steps. And Richard Rohr, he says, he says, you know, life is how God talks to us. So, like, if I'm not accepting life the way it is, basically I'm saying, God, you screwed up. You know, which is what I've done my whole life, right? Like, I come into this world and, and, and you know, everything, this should be this way, this could be this way. You know, I want to reinvent the world, and I'm literally playing God. And all that happens from that is I get disturbed. And when I'm disturbed, I'm looking for a solution. And drinking is a pretty good solution when it's working. You know, the problem for somebody like me and probably many of us is after a while that doesn't work anymore. You know, there's another line in the book that I, I, I there's a line in the book that I really like, page, page 25, and I'm not a page guy, but, um, it's, it's where it says, you know, um, when we had but two alternatives, one was to blot out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could or accept spiritual help, right? That blotting out is the drinking. The consciousness of my intolerable situation is what my real problem is, which is why I need a spiritual awakening. You know, I was working on Wall Street. I was making a lot of money. It wasn't enough. You know, I lived up in New City, New York, which is a really nice neighborhood, but I wasn't on the right street really wasn't. I was like in the shade. I wasn't getting sun. I was telling Laura, I had too many trees in front of the house. We cut down like 30 trees. Still didn't get enough sun, you know. I, I had nice cars. They weren't the right color. Like, I was never satisfied with anything. There was not enough of anything. And I remember thinking at some point, like, there's got to be more, right? I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I work a few steps, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing when I'm doing them, but I'm doing them because sponsor's telling me, just keep moving your feet. You will understand this when you look back. You know, like, like what I like to say is like, you know, when I got here, there was a crisis in my life, right? And I could continue doing the same thing and getting the same results, or I could take a risk and do something different. And the problem with the risk and the problem why I think the problem why people struggle and the problem why I struggled in the past is because it's unknown what the other, you know, it's like the, the road in front of you is, is dark. You don't know what you're getting. But like once you do this stuff, looking back, and that's why when we tell our stories and we look backwards, the road's like fully illuminated. I know exactly today. That's why we get sponsors. It's someone who's already been there and shares their experience, right? And I needed that because I knew freaking nothing when I walked in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, 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 and I'm so grateful that when I was new, I knew nothing, you know, that I could accept that I really knew nothing because my life was a mess and I had really like burned things to the ground, you know? And like, I kept moving, I kept doing this stuff, you know? Um, and, and I always like telling, you know, there's, there's a couple of stories, amends that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up because I think they're really powerful. And they're really powerful and they're really meaningful to me. And one of them, very simply, is, you know, my, my sisters, obviously, I had a lot of amends to make. But my younger sister, I, I probably talked for like two and a half hours. And when I was done, you know, I said, you know, what did I leave? You know, how much did I leave out? And I said, you know, do you want to add anything and how do you feel? And, you know, what can I do to make things right? And she just looked at me and she said, we were never mad at you. We just thought we were going to bury you right after daddy. Right? I mean, that, that was the condition I was in. And like, it could never, I could never understand, like on my own, I could write inventory from today to tomorrow. If I'm not listening to the other people that I heard, I have no idea what, what, you know, what damage I've really caused. You know? And she just said, I want you to be more of a brother and an uncle. You know, and that's the deal we have today. But both my parents, I had a, um, so I had to make graveside amends, right? I also had to get another sponsor, okay, because um, my first sponsor moved after like four, four and a half months. And, um, you know, this is, um, this is the Richie story. Here you go, Richie. Um, this, is, this is how I got my sponsor, okay? And this is really, really important. Right, because the people who are nice to you, like early on, like you just don't, 
you know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is, right? Like, you know, and we get better and better at this with, with time, you know? It's been a struggle for me, but it's like this whole, like, loving thing. And I had a conversation with Rich. I'd never met Rich. I had heard Richie share at meetings, you know? And I, 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 like, affectionately make fun of it today, although I understand what he was saying, but it's like, my life's none of my business and all this shit, you know? and uh, with his hair, right? I'd never had a conversation with him. And he approached me after one of these meetings, and it could have been like this meeting, because I know it was downstairs on the steps of Atonement here, right? And he started talking to me. And I didn't, I, I really didn't know him. And he was asking me like, how am I doing? Where am I in the steps? What's going on, you know? And like, there was a group of, you know what it's like out there, you know, after a meeting, there's like 25, 30 people, you know, around talking and stuff. And he was talking to me like I was the only one there. And I was going that Sunday to, up to New York to the cemetery to make amends. And I was really sort of sponsorless kind of at the time because my first sponsor moved, you know. I mean, he would still talk to me, but um, and I had this letter written, and I was scared, you know, I was, uh, I had obviously had some feelings about it, you know, and I'm talking to Richie, and, and he's asking me, and I'm telling him I gotta make these graveside amends, and he's like, dude, dude, that's the greatest, you're gonna, I mean, it's gonna be the greatest experience, you're gonna, you're gonna get an answer, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna see, and he's like, oh, it's like all like enthusiastic, and some of the other things he said to me is, hang out with people who are on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Like the enthusiasm, because this thing is really, you know, with my addiction, you know, no matter how bad I thought it was, it was worse. With recovery, no matter what I thought, it's better, okay? But I gotta, I gotta stick around, I gotta take the action to get there. So he's like, you know, hang out with people who are on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous. And then he said, you know, a lot of people aren't doing the deal. Make sure that you're doing the deal. I was like, what was it with deal mean? You know, and he's like telling me about, you know, about sponsoring and service and, you know, three sides of the triangle. This is all in one conversation, right? <laughs> and I think he gave me his phone number, you know, but he took mine, you know, knowing I probably wouldn't call. So for you guys that I get on about calling, you know, if you, right? Like, like it's, it's not easy, okay? But he asked me when I was going, I said Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning I was leaving, I was gonna go up, go up to New York. Um, I was leaving at 6.30, and seven o'clock I'm in my car, my phone rings. And it's like, Richie, he's like, oh, you know, Perky, oh, I'm saying, dude, I'm so excited for you. Are you on your way yet, you know? And, uh, and I was scared, and I went up there, and, um, and I read this letter, you know, basically to two headstones. I mean, it was, it's just not, it wasn't connecting with me at the time. You know, um, and, you know, in the letter, I, I wrote what I would say if they were alive, you know, with, with all the, the, the wrongs, you know, um, and my defective character and how I hurt them and all this stuff. And like, and if you have anything you want to add, right, and if you, you know, you want to let me know how you feel and what I could do to make things right, I'm open. I, I actually wrote, and I still have a letter, it spooks me out, but if you have any way of getting me a message, right, like I'm open to hearing it. And, you know, I felt like crap, I came back, I started talking to them like, like they were in their living room, and I started having a nice conversation. Then I left, and I, and, and, and I called Richie on the way, it's like, oh, what's that crazy? And he's like, you know, he's like all excited for me. And I'm like, I'm not feeling that, you know? He's like, dude, man, you're gonna get an answer, you wait and see. And one week later, I'm at a meeting downstairs that I don't think is around anymore, seconds and inches, and they're talking about steps eight and nine amends, right? And I'm sharing my experience with the amends. And, um, and afterwards, I walked out of the meeting, and you know, again, like the tears and all that stuff, right? And there's a woman standing on the, the street, and she says, you know, I don't know who you are, but can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And she's like, my daughter is in the NA meeting. She's 17 years old, she's a heroin addict. And I don't know what to do, right? And like, I don't know what to tell her other than like, you know, have you heard of Al-Anon? Um, I know when I was 17, but this woman is crying and I'm looking in her eyes and I'm like, this is my mom, right? I wasn't shooting heroin at 17 yet, but you know, I was doing a whole lot of other things and I know what my mom, she stayed up every night, every night, even when I was an adult moved out, 
man, because he was getting calls from ERs and, and police and stuff like that. And I remember looking at her. Um, and, and then, you know, my friend Ann came over and, you know, afterwards the, the woman leaves and I'm talking to Ann. It's like, man, I felt like I was talking to my mom there. And she said to me, well, maybe what you need to do is work with other guys so they don't put their families through what you put your family through. So like, you know, one of the things that's really been impressed upon me is, is about sponsorship, right? Like from early on, I was encouraged go out and get people to help. It's what the program's really all about, right? It is the 12th step in recovery, right? If I'm not doing that, you know, I'm really missing the point of this thing because everything in that damn book, when you read it, is gearing us to be of maximum service to others, right? And like understanding a little bit about the spiritual realm, okay, is everything is paradoxical and backwards. You know, I want stuff for me, 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 and then I feel empty and useless, right? When I'm giving, okay, I feel useful, and the words that Bill uses actually in the 12 and 12 are usefully whole, right? Usefully whole. And isn't that like how I came in here, not feeling whole? So like one of the things that, that I, you know, continue to do today is, you know, I stay active sponsoring because it is the 12th step in recovery. And for me, it's also a way of, of um, honoring, you know, my parents because, you know, today, you know, they have the son that, that they should have had for, you know, the 54 years before, you know. But this is what I do, you know, as a, you know, as a way to, like, like honor them. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up by saying I'm 62 years old. I've been a taker my whole life. It's always been me, right? It's been me in relationships. It's been me at work. It's been me and alcohol at synonymous times, okay? And, and today, you know, what I aspire to do and what I, what I really try to do, right, is be, you know, thinking of the other person. And one of the things, and, and you'll hear me say it a lot, I, I don't always live up to it, but the book is very clear. What am I bringing to the occasion? Right? What am I packing into the stream of life? Not what am I getting out of it? What am I not getting out of it? You know? And my life is really full now. You know, I felt disconnected because we, you know, we were away for a while. But I'm in a relationship with a woman I really love. My job, my business did not fail um, because I stayed sober and continued doing the work. My business is doing okay, right? Um, my relationships with my sisters are great. My relationships with my stepkids are, you know, pretty good. And we're going to go out to dinner with, uh, with one of them, actually with the granddaughter. She's graduating high school. I'm not that old. Um, and, and, like, you know, things just keep getting better. But, like, the thing that I like to remind people and remind myself, right, like, you won't like the guy that I am when, if I stop doing this stuff. So, like, if it means, like, spending four or five hours Saturday morning and Sunday morning working with sponsees, which is what I do, and getting up at five in the morning so I make sure to get my morning routine in, okay, and answering phone calls during the day, even though they might be annoying because I'm doing something else, okay, that's what keeps me you know, sane and, and, you know, and compassionate in other areas of my life. You leave me with myself too long, you know, I suck. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just go the wrong way. So I got to be other focused. Um, I knew I'd fill up the time, Aaron. So I'm, I'm, I really thank everyone who, who was here tonight. I hope I said something that kind of makes any sense. Um, and thanks for having me here. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.